such a privilege to worship with you, Calvary family, and now to open the word of God together. I want to invite you to open to James chapter 3. We're continuing our study of the book of James, and last time we were together, we completed chapter 2, so this morning we're beginning James chapter 3. And uh, because of communion this morning, I want to focus on a single verse, which is James chapter 3, verse 1. So we're going to be in James chapter 3, and we're going to look at James chapter 3, verse 1, and then we're going to kind of branch out from there to a more general study of the teaching ministry of the church. James chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord says this. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. I want to read that again. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. You know, at most churches, and Calvary's no exception, there's always kind of this perceived need for more teachers. I want you to think of how many teaching slots we have to fill every week. All of the different Sunday school classes, all of the adult life groups, all the small group Bible studies, all of the different needs for teaching. And so it often seems to us that we never have enough teachers, and so we tend to focus on recruiting more and on upping our numbers of teachers. Well, James chapter 3, verse 1 is going to give a little necessary corrective to that and perhaps a warning to us against being too focused on numbers and having too many teachers. James is going to encourage us to focus on quality of teaching rather than quantity of teachers. James is the pastor of the first Christian church, and so his perspective on this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is very informative to us. We should focus on the quality of teaching, not on the quantity of teachers. James doesn't make a sales pitch for more. He doesn't tell the congregation that becoming a teacher will bring you public popularity, personal satisfaction. Rather, he warns them against becoming teachers, warning that doing so would subject them to a stricter judgment. Not only does he not try to recruit more teachers, he tries to convince many not to become teachers. He's seems to be more concerned with filtering out the many who should not be teaching than he is concerned with recruiting the few that God has called to teach. And in doing so, he's reminding us all of an important biblical principle that with greater influence comes greater accountability. With greater influence comes greater accountability. James says that the congregational teachers will incur a stricter judgment greater judgment and he uses the plural he includes himself in that the first person plural he says that we will incur a stricter judgment including himself 
James is aware that the Lord has placed him and the other congregational teachers of the church in a position with great influence. And he knows that with that great influence comes great accountability. The Lord will hold him and the others accountable for how they used that influence. What does James have in mind when he says that teachers will incur a stricter judgment? Now, one possibility is that he's referring to the judgment of people. The criticism and scrutiny that comes from people to those who teach publicly. In other words, greater scrutiny that falls on teachers in this life and which come from other people. Now, we know that this indeed occurs. The more prominent, well-known, and influential a Bible teacher becomes, the more closely his every word and action is scrutinized and criticized by others. You can just Google the names of famous Bible teachers and see what's written on the internet about them and your ears will burn. I spent lots of years teaching in seminaries and Christian universities before coming to Calvary and I will say this, there's lots of ambitious young men who enter seminary dreaming of becoming a famous preacher. And I often look at them and think they have no idea what that would be like if their dream came true. They think it's a dream, it could be a nightmare. Very few of them realize how quickly they would wither under the unrelenting scrutiny and the harsh vitriolic criticism that well-known teachers receive. All teachers live in a fishbowl, but the more prominent a teacher becomes, the more intense the scrutiny becomes. With greater influence comes greater accountability. So it is true that there is stricter judgment which comes upon public teachers from people in the here and now. But I don't think that's primarily what James has in mind. I don't think James is primarily referring to the increased scrutiny which teachers endure here and now. And the reason I think he's referring to something else is because he uses a future tense verb. He doesn't use a present tense that will be, you know, more scrutinized. You know, people will be scrutinizing us more. He doesn't use the present tense. He says, we will incur a stricter judgment. Something in the future is going to happen which involves a more strict level of accountability. Because he uses a future tense verb, I think James has in mind eschatological judgment, the end times judgment, namely the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat of Christ. Scripture says that every person will stand before God and be judged for everything they have done in the body, whether good or bad. I hope you realize that. I hope you are cognizant of that. I hope you are living your life in light of the fact that someday you will stand before God and you will give an account for every thought, every word, every desire, every deed. And Jesus said there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Be sure your sin will find you out. Hebrews 9:27 says people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Everyone faces judgment, both believers and unbelievers. But scripture teaches that there are separate and distinct future judgments for believers and unbelievers. Believers will stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, while unbelievers will 
appear at the great white throne judgment of Revelation. The judgment of believers and the judgment of unbelievers have different purposes. The judgment of believers is for determining eternal rewards, while the judgment of unbelievers is for determining eternal punishments. Whether or not you are united with Christ determines your destination, whether heaven or hell. But how you live as a believer determines your rewards in heaven, or how you live as an unbeliever determines your levels of punishment in hell. The more faithfully that believers serve and obey the Lord, the more rewards and the greater responsibilities they will be given in the eternal kingdom. And that should motivate you to live in a way which is faithful to the Lord and to serve him and to dedicate your life to the things that matter eternally. It also means that we are merciful towards unbelievers when we act as salt and light in our society and we try to restrain evil because the more evil we restrain, the more we are helping even unbelievers in the degrees of punishment which they will receive. Heaven will be perfectly joyful for all. And yet how believers live now will have a great effect on the roles and rewards they will enjoy for all eternity. And hell, conversely, will be terrible for all. And yet how unbelievers live in now will have a great effect on the severity of the punishment they will endure for all eternity. We don't talk about this enough. There are varying degrees of reward in heaven and there are varying degrees of punishment in hell. So how you live matters. It is whether or not you belong to Christ which determines your destination, but it is how you live the Christian life which determines your rewards, whether you will lose rewards or whether you will gain them, and what role and responsibility you will have in the eternal kingdom. As I mentioned before, James includes himself in the first person we there in chapter 3, verse 1. And so it's clear that this verse is referring to the judgment of believers, that is the judgment seat of Christ. And James is saying, at the judgment seat of Christ, teachers will be judged more strictly. They will be judged by a higher standard and therefore the rewards given will correlate to the stricter standard. With greater influence comes greater responsibility. The Lord will hold Bible teachers, congregational teachers, to a stricter standard, and he will judge them and distribute or withhold heavenly rewards to them based upon a stricter standard. And James says this is so sobering that it should cause the vast majority of believers not to become teachers. You know, people tend to think of things much differently than the Lord does. People think that those men with the biggest audiences and the biggest influence will be the most richly rewarded in heaven. I often hear this even stated publicly in relation to famous Bible teachers. What a great reward they, they're going to have in heaven. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. While they may have more numerical impact than the rest of us, they also have more spiritual accountability than the rest of us. Their impact is higher, but so is the standard by which they will be judged. This is why I think we will all be very surprised by who will be most richly rewarded in heaven 
and who will have the most prominent roles of responsibility in the eternal kingdom. It will not be who you think it will be. Jesus said on several occasions that the first will be last and the last will be first in the kingdom of heaven. It may be the poor, unknown widow from the remote village in the third world country, not the world famous evangelist or Bible teacher who will be most honored and most richly rewarded in heaven and given the greatest responsibilities in the kingdom. The first will be last and the last will be first. This, by the way, is why the so-called evangelical feminist movement is so incredibly misguided at the heart of the premise on which it operates. What is the heart, the premise of evangelical feminism? It is the idea that a woman's worth is determined by her power and her prominence in the here and now. Who's first now is what's important. Who has leadership now is what's important. Have they not listened to the Lord? The first will be last and the last will be first. Evangelical feminists think that if men have more public prominence, the worth of women is belittled, but nothing could be more opposite to the Christian worldview. We need to sometimes remind people that we serve a Lord who left the majesty of heaven to be born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough for cattle. Who was a man of sorrows who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the one who taught that the first will be last and the last will be first. He's the one who inspired the Apostle Paul to write that in our weakness we are strong and that the Lord has cast down the proud and lifted up the humble. Therefore, because the Lord himself in his incarnation gave us this powerful example and teaching Earthly power and prominence cannot be the correct standard for measuring someone's worth and importance. So ladies, don't fall for the lie and for the trick. The reality is, according to Scripture, that you have been given honorable and vital roles by your all-wise creator. Roles which, if fully embraced and faithfully fulfilled, will result in rich rewards, honor, and prominence in heaven for all eternity. And so, dear sisters, those who are highly valued and will be richly rewarded and greatly honored by the King of glory himself, don't, please don't, covet the public teaching roles which God has assigned to men for this tiny speck of time before the forever of eternity. In eternity, we will all understand that stricter judgment is not something to be coveted. It is something to shudder at. Neither power or prominence are the right standards by which to judge a person's worth in the eternal kingdom. In the kingdom of heaven, the first will be last and the last will be first. Therefore, James says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Now with our remaining time, I want to draw from some other texts of scripture and just kind of give you an 
overview of just a few aspects. We can't cover everything, of course, but a few aspects of the biblical understanding of the congregational or public teaching ministry in the church. We're going to be focusing primarily on the role of pastors and elders and just kind of giving an overview of scriptural teaching on that topic. We're going to briefly survey the role of pastor teachers, the restrictions on congregational teaching, the responsibility of pastor teachers, the rebuke of unfaithful teachers, and the reward of faithful teachers. Now, we're just going to kind of survey. We're going to move pretty rapidly. Don't worry if you don't get every detail, but I just want to kind of give you the big picture. So let's look first at the role of pastor teachers. And I want to do this by way of contrast. First of all, Here is what the role of pastor teachers is not. It is not the priesthood, not the priesthood view. Unlike in liturgical and sacramental religions, biblical Christianity does not view the clergy as being mediators between God and the regular people. The scripture says very clearly, there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not function as a mediator between you and God. I am not a priest between you and God. You have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus. Furthermore, because you are united with him, 1 Peter clearly teaches that you are a kingdom of priests. We believe in what's called the priesthood of all believers. You have direct access and a personal relationship with him. You are not dependent upon me. You don't have to go through me to get to him. I do not stand in between you and him. I stand with you, worshiping him. We do not hold the priesthood view. There are not two classes of Christians, the priest who supposedly hold the keys of heaven and the people who don't, who are dependent upon the clergy for access to grace and the forgiveness of their sins. Rather as... 1 Peter 2, 9, other passages so clearly teach all believers are priests. Every believer has direct access to God and a personal relationship with him. So we don't hold the priesthood view of the public teaching ministry of the church. Secondly, we don't hold the performance view. Not the priesthood view and not the performance view. Unlike the seeker-sensitive church growth movement's view, Christian worship services and the public teaching of God's word is not a performance. It is not a show. Therefore, success is not gauged by numbers. The goal of the church is not to draw bigger and bigger crowds by putting on a better show than other churches in the area. And my goal as a pastor is not to be cooler than other pastors, and I certainly am not. I know quite a few, and they are much cooler than I. I wasn't expecting quite the resounding amens there, you know. Let's go easy here. Yeah. No, but my, my goal, my job is not to entertain you. It's not to be hip or cool. My goal is to serve you. Serve you Bible meals. The bread of life. We also do not hold the psychological view. Sadly, a lot of pastors, listening to them, It's clear they seem to think that their job is to make people feel good about themselves, to to raise their self-esteem, to pass on trite tips for personal improvement, which have been gleaned from the latest self-help book. Now, under the slogan of being relevant and practical, these guys' sermons are basically motivational speeches. 
and group therapy sessions. You know, some of these guys are very articulate, but they're also what I would call unqualified Dr. Phil wannabes. They're Dr. Phil without the doctor. Just Phil. The responsibility of the church is to teach the whole counsel of God. From its doctrine, to its history, to its commandments, to its principles, to its promises. Our role is to reveal the will of the Lord to you and exhort you to do it. And all of God's word is 100% practical. In fact, nothing is more relevant and practical than the exposition of God's word, the revelation of his mind and his will to you and to me. The things are all wise God has determined we need to know he gave to us in his word and therefore the word is central in our public ministry. We don't hold the psychological or therapeutic view of the preaching office. What do we hold? Well, we hold what is commonly known in theological circles as the Protestant view. It's the view based upon the principle of sola scriptura or scripture alone, that the Bible is our sole authority and that it is sufficient. It contains everything we need for life and godliness. And so I have one mission and one mission only, which is to take the word and deliver it to you without adding, without subtracting. It's called the Protestant view because it is in protest against the widespread errors of the priesthood performance and psychological views. And it is the classical, historical, and biblical view of the public teaching ministry of the church. What is our job according to Scripture? Well, 2 Timothy 4, 2, our job is to preach the word. Acts 20, 27, it is to teach the whole counsel of God. Ephesians 4.12, it is to equip the saints for works of service. That is our role. The role of the teachers of the church is to faithfully exposit the scriptures, neither adding to them nor taking away. Just to faithfully deliver the word as the Lord has given it. That's the role. Well, what are restrictions? What restrictions has the Lord placed on congregational teaching? And the first we already covered from James 3.1, which is not many. Not many. Why not many? Well, we already covered one reason. It's because those who teach will incur a stricter judgment, and that should warn off those who are unwilling to devote their lives. But there's another reason why there should be not many, and that's because the Lord has a much more important mission for the majority of Christians. The Lord wants most of his people to be focused on reaching the world outside the church, not on teaching inside the church. You know, an army does need a few cooks, but can you imagine if an army was all cooks? I mean, they just gather at base camp and feed each other. You know, first of all, they will be hugely obese in a quick quick period of time. But secondly, who's going to go out and fight? Who's going to go out and rescue the perishing? It is not the Lord's will for the majority of Christians to be cooks. The majority of Christians are to be frontline warriors for Christ. And it is the soldiers who are most important, not the cooks. I hope that when you come here week by week, you get a good round meal and get handed perhaps some ammo 
enough to carry you through another week of being an ambassador of Christ in your workplace, the vocation the Lord has gifted and placed you in, in your relational circles, in your social circles, in your neighborhood. You are the warriors for Christ. We're just cooks. We're the cooks back at camp. And the army does need a few cooks, but not many. If there are more cooks than soldiers, it means the focus of the army has shifted away from its mission. And like an ingrown toenail, it's not good for much. Another restriction is not only not many, the scripture makes it clear, not women. The scriptures are crystal clear about this. The Lord has assigned the corporate teaching ministry to men and has restricted women from teaching where men are present. I want to read this to you. It's the word of the Lord, not any human opinion. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I want you to notice that this command is rooted in the creation order and in the results of the fall. Therefore, it is transcultural and timeless, and it is a command which we as the church must obey. And church history, by the way, shows that churches which disobey this command will disobey many other commands as well. Why is that? Why is this often the first domino to fall on a downward spiral of churches? Well, I think it's pretty simple. If a church won't obey God's commands about who should preach and teach, then they won't obey God's commands about what should be preached and taught. If a church will not obey God's commands about who should preach, they will not obey God's command about what should be preached. But the question arises, aren't there women who are extremely gifted teachers who it is clear that the Holy Spirit of God has given amazing teaching gifts? And the answer to that is resoundingly yes. Then why would God give them such amazing gifts if he didn't want them to use it? Here is where we need to listen to the Lord. The Lord does give amazing teaching gifts to women. The question is, who should be the beneficiaries of that gift? Is it adult men? Are they the ones that need this incredible treasure and this resource of the teaching gifts of women? God gives these gifts because he wants women to use them. The question is, for whom, on whose behalf? And I will suggest to you that we devalue the importance of children when we think about this question. It's as if men are the most important. So whoever teaches men is most important. That is not the way the Lord views it, is it? The Lord said, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. The teaching mission which God has given to women is so important that he wants them to be laser-focused on that mission and not have their gifts diverted somewhere else. You know, if, if you're a pilot, you have such 
you know, in, in, in a military, if you're a pilot, you have such a vital role, it would be a shame for a pilot to sit in a tank and drive to the front. Women, you are the special forces of the church. And you have been assigned to the most vital mission field there is, and that is that of children. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 says that the older women are to teach what is good to the younger women, and what is good that they are to teach is to how to love their husbands and how to love and care for their children. Older women are to focus on teaching the younger women, and younger women are to focus on teaching their children. And the question is why? Why does the Lord assign this? The question is not whether you are gifted to teach, but to whom you are called to teach. Ladies, do you know who leads more souls to eternal salvation than anyone else? Is it pastors? Oh, no. Is it missionaries? Oh, no. Who is it? It's mothers and grandmothers and Sunday school teachers and VBS leaders. The majority of people in heaven right now were led to saving faith by the gospel teaching of their mothers and grandmothers and Sunday school teachers and VBS leaders. Ladies, do you realize that most people who get saved get saved before they become adults? It's a huge statistic. No mission field is as important and as fertile as that of teaching children. So the Lord has designed you to be focused on the most important mission field there is. This is not demeaning to you. This is honoring to you. This is vitally important. So if it bothers you that God has restricted women from congregational teaching roles, I want you to consider why he did so. Please consider that he did so because he has something much more important and eternally impactful for you to do. God has made men and women equal but different. And he has assigned different roles to men and women. Therefore, we will be most happy, satisfied, productive, and eternally impactful when we embrace the purpose for which our all-wise creator designed us. Don't get distracted from your mission. Next restriction is it's not those whose lives or character or family is in disorder. In Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says that the roles of pastor and elder are restricted to those whose character and family lives are in order. And the qualifications do not mean perfection in all those areas, but it does mean that there aren't glaring or serious or life-dominating problems in any of those characteristics. The teachers and leaders of the church need to be examples to the flock, and so their personal and their family lives must be in proper biblical order. Next, the scripture restricts congregational teaching to those who are not new converts. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 specifically says, he must not be a new convert so that he doesn't fall under the temptation and the snare of the devil through pride. Chapter 5, verse 22, Paul says to Timothy, don't lay hands on anyone too hastily. Because if you do so, you'll participate in their sin. The leading teachers of the church should be men who have known Jesus and walked with him for a long time. Last, and there's many more we could say, but we'll just summarize with this one. The teaching ministry is restricted from those who are untaught or unstable. 
This is 2 Peter chapter 3. He says that the untaught and the unstable twist the scriptures. Two types of teachers twist the scriptures, those who are untaught and those who are unstable. The untaught someone is someone who teaches but has never learned. He wants to teach, but he's never been taught. He's untrained. He's unknowledgeable. He makes glaring doctrinal errors or moral areas because he has not sat at the feet of the godly, wiser, older men who have gone before him. He's so proud. He doesn't need teachers. He thinks you do. He's untaught, but wants to teach. Stay away from such. These are the men who don't need training, don't need anyone to teach them, don't need mentored, don't need discipled, don't need anything. They're self-sufficient in themselves, but boy, they have so much to give to you. No, they don't. It is only those who have received who have something to give. Stay away from the untaught. Secondly, stay away from the unstable. This may be someone who has a doctorate in theology, but he does not have deeply and firmly and rooted and permanent biblical, doctrinal, and moral convictions. So he drifts. He's just blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. He chases every fad, and his moral convictions probably do the same. Stay away from the unstable. So those are the restrictions, as James says, let not many become teachers because those who teach will be judged more strictly. Let's look, though, now briefly at the responsibility of pastor teachers, and I think the best verse to summarize this is Titus chapter 1, verse 9. It says that these leaders should hold fast the faithful word. That's their calling. To hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching and for a purpose so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. It's the twofold ministry. To exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who who contradict. Faithful teachers must do both. They must teach the truth and they must refute error. Those who refuse to refute error, they don't want to be confrontational. They don't want to be, you know, controversial. They're not being faithful to Scripture. Their job is to instruct in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, how they do that is important. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 Uh, Verse 24 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of their truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So yes, we must speak the truth in love. We must not be quarrelsome. We must correct in gentleness, but we must correct. We must refute those who contradict. There is a twofold ministry of the teacher to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. I'm always reminded of what the Lord said to Ezekiel in chapter 3. He said, Ezekiel, I have set you as a watchman on the wall. And he says, So when I warn you and you don't pass on the warning, I'm going to require it from you. If I give a warning and you don't pass on the warning, it's on you. But if I encourage the righteous and you don't encourage the righteous, then it's on you too. Teachers are like watchmen on a wall. We must sound the warning when the Lord sounds the warning. This is our responsibility. Now let's look at those who don't fulfill that responsibility. 
the rebuke of unfaithful teachers. Jesus and the apostles constantly warned that there will be false teachers. He says they'll come up among you. So we need to talk about what to do when we encounter teachers who are unfaithful to the truth or they are unfaithful to God's moral laws. Well, first of all, if it's a moral issue, their sin must first be fairly proven. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Don't do it on the basis of gossip or of rumor or of slander. It must first be fairly proven. Satan is a liar. He's the accuser of the brethren. He uses slander and false accusations to try to tear good men down. So the Lord gives some protection here. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. We don't believe rumors. We believe facts, things that have been verified. So sin must first be fairly proven. But once it has been fairly proven, the next verse tells us what to do. Right after it says, don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses, verse 20 says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. If their sin is fairly proven, then their sin must be publicly rebuked. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. What if it's not a moral issue? What if it's a doctrinal issue? They're teaching error. Well, again, first of all, their error must first be fairly proven. Beloved, beware of the so-called discernment blogs who every week expose someone else as a heretic and a doctrinal scoundrel. So often, those so-called discernment blogs are gossip sites, slander sites, that take men's teaching out of context, twist it, and make you think they taught what they did not teach. They misquote. They quote out of context. They spin a web of rumors and lies in order to tear down faithful men. You know, that happened to Paul. In Romans chapter 3, verse 8, listen to what he says. He says, why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. People are spreading lies. You know, you know what Paul teaches? Paul teaches, let's do evil that good may come. That's what Paul teaches. False teacher, that Paul. Heretic, that Paul. Paul says, you know what? We are slanderously reported and some claim that we say this, but it is not true. And then he says something very strong. He says, their condemnation is just. Before you label someone a false teacher or accuse someone of teaching error, make sure you accurately and fully understand their position and make sure you are fair in the way you describe their position to others. Well, what if the error is fairly proven? Well, then it must be forcefully refuted. It must be forcefully refuted. Jude chapter 3 says, contend earnestly for the faith, which has once and for all been handed down to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Contend earnestly, error must be forcefully refuted. Well, we've seen the rebuke of unfaithful teachers. What are the rewards of faithful teachers? I want to take you to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, and then verse 16, because I think this summarizes so well what the reward of faithful teachers is. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's the goal, just to be a good 
servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. That's the goal. And then look at verse 16. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. He says, look, Paul says to Timothy, look, Timothy, pay close attention to your life, how you live, and pay close attention to what you teach, because if you persevere in that, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. What is the goal of the faithful Bible teacher? It is the salvation of those who hear. That's it. The reward every faithful teacher seeks is souls. It's you. It's a spiritual fellowship that will last for all eternity. I love the heart of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You know, what kind of commendation did he want? What kind of approval did he want? Listen to what he says. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. The goal is not plaques. The goal is not papers. The goal is not public affirmation. The goal is the combination of God written on the human heart, the gospel inscribed in the soul, the gospel which saves. That's what Paul reiterates in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. What is, what is the goal of ministry? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he states what it is and should be. He says, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? What's the goal here? The goal is you, and the goal is you very specifically, that you will be with the Lord Jesus at his glorious appearing. That's the goal. That's the reward. And he says in verse 20, for you are our glory and joy. What is the reward of the faithful teacher. It is souls. It is you. The question the faithful teacher asked the Lord is not, what will be the reward of my labors? But who will be the reward of my labors? Not what, but who. The reward of the faithful teacher is souls. That's what he lives for. That's what he endures the hard times for. That's what drives him. It is you. Something written by the Spirit of God on the tablet of the human heart. You are glory and joy. I say that just to say, I love you. I really do. It is such a blessing to cook for you, to be your cook, to be your servant, to fellowship with you, to try week by week to give you something, just a good square Bible meal to get you through another week as you go out as the frontline ambassadors and the honored soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So let's celebrate that fellowship together. Men, please come and serve us the bread. As the men come, I want to encourage you to consider whether or not you will be at that glorious appearing, whether the gospel has been inscribed on your heart by the Spirit. And then if you do know the Lord, how are you living? We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What will be his evaluation? Is there anything that is breaking your fellowship with God or others? Let's spend some time in reflection on those things.